you guys, it is back. The event you have all been waiting for. Tony, go ahead, spill the beans. Bigger Pockets 2021 is officially happening. We'll be in New Orleans from October 4th through October 5th, and it is going to be the best real estate conference that happens this year, hands down. Okay, so here's just a really short list of some of the keynote speakers. Hale Elrod, uh, Brandon Turner, Ken Corsini, David Green, Mindy Jensen, Scott Trent, Tony Robinson, and many, many more. Uh, this is going to be a great conference. And really the best part about conferences, in my opinion, is the networking. Yeah, there, there's going to be 1,500 investors at this event, and I guarantee that you guys will be able to build relationships, boost your potential, and close more deals. So if you were interested in attending, which I hope all of you rookies are, head over to biggerpockets.com forward slash conference to buy your tickets today. We will see you guys there. This is Real Estate Rookie episode 93. That's a big thing that I have embraced is that who not how mentality. Like I said, embracing my own ignorance, not trying to pretend like I know something I don't, finding somebody who does know that and being okay with like maybe making a little less money right now. My name is Ashley Kerr and I am here with Tony Robinson. Tony, go ahead, tell us how many deals you got under contract. We are closing on another property actually tomorrow. So, <laughs> but, 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 big but here. We, we actually made the decision yesterday that we've got five properties under contract and we're, we're not going to go after anymore for a while. We really want to kind of slow down, stabilize the portfolio that we have, and really just kind of refine some of our internal processes. And then I'm also, I like recently stumbled into the world of container homes and I've become like super infatuated with the idea of building a container home on one of our properties. So I think that'll be the the next big project for us. And then we're also working on some other stuff. we got like this fun that we're working on. So we, we got a lot of, a lot of the crazy things happening. I have said those exact same words where I'm not going to buy any property for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I don't believe you. <laughs> just like when you quit your job, you told me, oh yeah, I'll probably get another job. I'm just going to take some time off, go on our honeymoon and blah, blah, blah. Okay. That was what? Six months ago. Six months ago. <laughs> I knew I knew you wanted to go back to work. <laughs> well, I, I promised my wife that I'd slow down on buying the houses. So maybe hopefully this time I can keep that promise. We'll see. She's just as addicted as you are. So <laughs> Okay, well you guys start placing your bets, uh, make your wager on what's, what what's when Tony's gonna Yeah, Tony's gonna buy the next house. Okay, so today's guest. We have Eric on, and my favorite, favorite thing about this episode was his negotiating tips and how he doesn't present an offer. So you guys have to make sure you get through the episode to get to that part because it was very interesting and the things he tells you to say to potential buyers or sellers is just, it's gold. It's our golden nuggets today. Yeah, really, really great explanation on on negotiation for new investors. But he also goes into detail about how he's finding his deals now. He's leveraging SEO, which I don't think we've had anybody on the podcast really talk about, about leveraging SEO to be a big source of deals for them. So just he does a really, really top to bottom explanation on how, how to find deals, how to negotiate and how to get them closed. Okay, well, let's bring Eric onto the show. Guys, before we bring Eric on, if you haven't checked out the Real Estate Rookie YouTube channel, please make sure you do. Ash and I are dropping new videos every week. We've also got some really cool special guest contributors on the channel as well. So make sure to listen and subscribe there as well. 
Are current interest rates making you depressed about cash flow? What if it didn't have to be that way? Rent to Retirement has 2.99% seller financing available on turnkey properties. You heard that right. That's a seller financed 2.99% interest rate where the average cash flow is over $900 per month. They also have options where you can put as low as 5% down on multiple investment properties with no PMI. Rent to Retirement is the nation's leading turnkey investment company that understands what it takes to be successful in today's dynamic real estate market. Their reputation speaks for itself with more five-star reviews than any other company on the Bigger Pockets website. Rent to Retirement offers fully turnkey properties that are newly built or renovated, leased and managed, allowing you to invest with confidence in the markets that offer the best returns. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's rent. T-O, retirement.com. Or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com bp. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. Rookies, 2024 is the year to start protecting your rental properties with an LLC. But you don't have to do all the paperwork and filing yourself. Corporate Direct is your professional and affordable option for getting your LLC done right. They handle the state filings, draft your operating agreement, and act as your registered agent. They'll even help you comply with the Corporate Transparency Act, a new federal disclosure law affecting every real estate investor. Corporate Direct is a family business founded by attorney, author, and rich dad advisor Garrett Sutton over 35 years ago. Now, his son Ted is a licensed attorney working with him. Together, they've helped thousands of real estate investors form and maintain their LLCs and protect their assets. If you're trying to build a real estate portfolio, do not skip the LLC. Head over to corporatedirect.com slash biggerpockets to schedule a free 15-minute consultation with an incorporating specialist. Mention Real Estate Rookie and get a $100 discount on your formation. That's corporatedirect.com slash biggerpockets. Eric, welcome to the podcast today, brother. Super excited to have you on. Thanks, Tony. Hey, Ashley. Good to be here. So Eric, we'll, we'll get into your story here shortly, but I guess just tell us a little bit about yourself, man. When you're not working in real estate, what are you doing and how'd you get your start? Yeah, I'm, uh, I live here in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, I've got a wife and two uh, wild and wonderful kids. Uh, I've got a two-year-old daughter and an eight-year-old son. And then we love doing anything outdoors here in Chattanooga. So I'm whitewater kayaking, mountain biking, trail running, hiking, any, anything I can do, any chance I get outside, that's my jam. So Eric, before we, we keep going, where did you live before Chattanooga? 
Yeah, so I lived in Shreveport, Louisiana, which I hear you have some uh, experience with that city. <laughs> Me and you might be the only people that have invested both in Shreveport and in Tennessee. I don't know. Maybe there yeah, might be some other people, but you're the only person I know. Yeah. <laughs> maybe so. Maybe so. So for the listeners, I bought my first four properties in Shreveport, Louisiana. And obviously now I've got some uh, investments also in Tennessee in the Smoky Mountains. So Eric and I are, are blood brothers. We just didn't know it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I think I think we share some uh, some bankers as well in Shreveport area. Tony, go ahead and please name drop again that you have a property for sale there if anybody is interested. So the the last rental I own in Shreveport, Louisiana, if anybody's interested, the flood insurance is really high. It might be a negative cash flow deal for you, but it looks really nice on the outside. So right on, right Eric, on. Eric, the last four episodes I think we recorded somehow, Tony, has it worked this into <laughs> the That's awesome. I'm actually selling all my properties in Louisiana right now too, because the market's good and I like Chattanooga better. So I heard you say we also share some bankers did you use who, who was your banker out there yeah home federal oh beautiful yeah same bank i use as well that's exactly yeah. right yeah so i use home federal and community bank both those two in uh, shreveport so yeah awesome brother awesome man well we are not here to talk about me and my love for shreveport we're here to talk about you man so tell us how you got started eric what was or i guess before we dive in tell us about your, your current portfolio just give us like a brief overview of where your portfolio is at today so currently I have seven units, uh, five properties. And so I've got two duplexes and then the rest are single family homes. They're about half and half Louisiana and here in Tennessee. And I've got currently six under contract that we're working on trying to get closed in the next little bit. So it's kind of the momentum is building. When did you get your first deal? So I bought my first house, I think I was about 23. So that was like gosh, 13 years ago now. So that was kind of an accidental house hack, actually. So I uh, right out of college, I was working and living with some uh, roommates with a girl who she owned the house and she rented out rooms uh, to the rest of us. And then she got married and kicked us all out, understandably. So we all had to leave. And uh, I was the only one kind of at the time with like a stable job and was like, well, I can just go buy a house and we can all just move into my house. So bought a fixer upper, took about a month fixing it up on new floors, paint, that kind of stuff. And then lived in that house for about three years with roommates who paid my mortgage plus some and was like, Hey, there's something to this. This is kind of cool. I need to keep this rolling. So yeah, that's kind of how I got my start. So then after that, you had that for three years, how long until you purchased your next property? And was there a period of a analysis paralysis as to you weren't going to be living in the property and it'd be an investment? How did that mindset shift happen? Yeah. So I actually moved down to Louisiana. So that was in Arkansas where my first house was. That's where I'm originally from. So I moved down to Shreveport, Louisiana. And then when I moved down there, started looking for a house, was just kind of crashing on a friend's spared bedroom until I could, could find my own place and uh, happened upon a duplex that was a HUD foreclosure that was still in the, I guess, the period of time that owner occupants could buy it first before it went to investors being able to make offers on it. And so I was able to buy a duplex that I lived in one side and rented out the other and took the money from selling my house in Arkansas to put the down payment on that one. At that point in time, I think I did 20% down on that one because I didn't realize that I could get loans for multifamily, uh, small multifamily for only a lower down payment. That's just my banker at that time told me I needed 20%. And I was like, okay, and did that with the money I made from my other house. So, yeah. Eric, can you go into a little detail of the process of what it was like to purchase a HUD foreclosure? And you kind of described exactly what it is there briefly, how it's put up for sale and it's for owner occupants only to bid on it for a certain amount of period. And then investors can bid on it if 
no one that's going to own or occupy it purchases it. Can you explain a little bit more about what a HUD foreclosure is and what the process is like to purchase one? Yeah, absolutely. I think when I actually went to go look at it and then even put my offer in, I didn't even know it was a HUD foreclosure at the time. I just was looking on MLS at a realtor who was sending me properties. And then he told me, I think kind of when we were about to close that it was actually a HUD foreclosure because it was just a little more paperwork on, on some things. But yeah, so typically that's just when the house has been foreclosed on. And so now it's being sold to recoup the loan or whatever it was that that's still owed on it. And there's usually a few week period on the front end that owner occupants are allowed to buy it first before it's open to investors just to allow that to happen. And so honestly, at the time I knew nothing about HUD or foreclosures or anything is just on the MLS. And I went and looked at it and made sense and bought it. So, you know, I was still kind of super new at the time and didn't really even know what I was doing. I want to keep going with your portfolio so we can talk about how you've kind of scaled this thing up. So you get the house hack, you move to Shreveport, you get a couple of deals from there, but you're you're at seven units now. So I guess just kind of give us a quick walkthrough of how you scaled your portfolio. Yeah. So I got the duplex and then about a year after I bought the duplex, uh, I got married. And so my wife and I bought a house that had a garage apartment in the back. And so we house hacked that for a few more years. Uh, I bought another single family house that I bought for like $40,000 and put about $10,000 into it in three months of my own sweat equity, fixing it up. Uh, I realized that I will never rehab my own property ever again. That's not my skill set. I'm not good at it. It took me about three months to do what a professional crew probably could have done in like a week, working nights and weekends and, you know, missing time with the family. And it was, it was rough. <laughs> it was rough. So I did that. And then that was the only house that I acquired until I moved to Tennessee. Uh, when I moved to Tennessee, I kept my contacts in Louisiana. I actually ended up doing my first Burr deal about a year and a half ago. So I actually found a deal on the MLS that my realtor had sent me. He's also a property manager. Uh, so he helped me take down the deal. He actually is also a contractor. So he's kind of triple threat. He's my property manager, contractor, and my realtor. So he found the deal for me. He rehabbed it for me and he manages the property for me. So I think that one we bought for $80,000, put about $15,000 into it. It appraised at 140. So we took out all our cash and then now it's cash flowing and, and good to go. So did that. And then I bought a few more properties in the past few months here in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Eric, have you been working full time during this? What has your career looked like? I mean, did you quit your job after your first house hack? What are you doing? So when I moved to Louisiana, I actually moved down there to work with a homeless outreach program there in Shreveport. And I ended up becoming the director of the Homeless Outreach Center in Shreveport. Uh, that's actually how me and my wife met. We also have a recovery home for women and children who have been rescued from human trafficking. And my wife was a uh, house mom volunteer. She lived in one of the houses with the those women and, and kids. And so that's kind of how we met and end up doing the whole falling in love and getting married and doing that whole thing. So we did all that. And then right after we got married, about a year later, my wife and I started, became foster parents. So we had several different foster kids. We ended up having our now son, uh, Landon. We fostered him for about two years. And then we had decided that if and when we were able to adopt him, that we wanted to move somewhere to give him a fresh start. So we moved to Chattanooga, and I didn't have a job when we moved here. So I, we literally moved here. I didn't have a job. My wife was a nurse. I started 
selling on eBay and Amazon, I would go to garage sales and thrift stores and like Goodwills and stuff and find stuff to turn around and sell on eBay, which I know is super random. So I did that for a long time. I graduated up into buying pallets of liquidated items and then reselling those. And then about 10 months ago, I uh, started my real estate company that we're actually focused on making that a full-time gig. So, and I have a third company uh, that we do. We set up fundraisers for youth sports teams and schools and that kind of stuff, selling bed sheets. I know that's super random, but just any anything to hustle to make some money to make ends meet. And then real estate's always been the long game. Though. I love it. Yeah. So I've had a lot of different random jobs. No, you sound like a hustle for sure, Eric. Now, but I want to go back because if you're, you've purchased seven properties now, and it seems like quite a few in the past couple of years here, how are you financing these if you don't have traditional W-2 income? Yeah. So the first few I bought was with traditional W-2 income. And then since then, it's just been finding lenders who will still allow me to get kind of FHA or the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac or whatever loans who will look at my income from all of my hustles, I guess, that I've been doing long enough that they'll count it as actual income. So I've still been kind of getting most of my loans the traditional way. And then I've used a few kind of construction style loans where if I'm doing a rehab on a property that the bank will fund some of the rehab costs and then I'll refinance out later. Eric, are you seeing that banks are requiring two years of tax returns with your income that's not W-2? Yeah, so okay. that's actually been great to have my wife's W-2 because that helps us qualify for some of those loans. In fact, some of the properties we've actually put solely in her name just because it was easier to qualify with her W-2 than my mess of a financial statement. <laughs> for all of our single listeners out there, Eric just dropped a golden nugget right there. Marry someone with a W-2 income so that you can get financing on your properties. <laughs> we need to have a, a dating segment on here for Ricky. That's good. That's good. Bigger pocket singles group. Eric, so Eric, I got, I got one more follow up on the financing piece. So how were you able to find these lenders that were able to use all of your side hustles as income? Like were these like four leaf clovers that, that you just happened to stumble across or how, how did you actually find these people? Man, a lot of that's just asking questions. I would find other investors or other people and I would just talk. Anybody who would talk to me about real estate, I would talk to them until they told me to shut up and go away. I would just constantly pick their brain on, okay, so what kind of lenders do you use? Who's good connections in Shreveport and Chattanooga? The other day I was actually uh, here in Chattanooga, I'm refinancing a duplex that my wife actually just quit her job. And so we don't have any W-2 income. And so now it's a little bit more of a struggle to find that. So I put something out on our local Facebook group for uh, real estate investors here in Chattanooga. Just like, hey, does anybody work with a lender who works with people who don't have typical W-2 income? And I had like 10 people respond with, oh yeah, this guy's great. This guy's great. This lady at this bank does really good stuff. And they're willing to work with people who are entrepreneurs and self-employed and that kind of stuff. So a lot of that's just networking and just embracing your own ignorance and not being scared to ask questions. Eric, I love the advice of using a Facebook group. Like Facebook groups for me in my transition from long-term rentals to short-term rentals has been invaluable. There are like several big short-term rental Facebook groups on Facebook and I've been able to connect with so many people. I was literally in a Facebook group yesterday and we're thinking about purchasing in a city called Lake Arrowhead, California, which is nearby to where I live. And I was in a Facebook group, found some random person who I'd never met before who was talking about Lake Arrowhead I sent her 
her a message and we had like an hours long back and forth on Facebook Messenger about investing in like Arrowhead. She's also thinking about investing in Joshua Tree. So I gave her some information about my market. So it's like there are so many people that are willing to share and kind of give their experiences. Like you said, you just have to be I guess, confident enough to share your ignorance and and ask for that help. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like there's the real estate community is way more giving and forthcoming with information and sharing and trying to help other people than almost any other sort of community people I've ever met. It's like everybody's so excited to help other people grow and be better and, and make grow their business. Eric, I have a question on finding your team real quick, because we've had a, a mix of people. Some investors would rather have like one key person, the boots on the ground that kind of takes care of everything. Like you have your one person that's property manager, helps with the rehab, is your realtor. Then there's other people that say, no, I want one of each person because I want those checks and balances. I want my realtor to stop in and make sure that the rehab is being done. How do you kind of navigate that having that one key person? That's a good question. I mean, honestly, the one guy that I had in Shreveport, I just trust him. He was actually, we were kind of friends before we even started working together. And he was referred to me even just, I kind of met him through other friends and I've never really had an issue. Like it's always been great. I know like, so I was like, if it's working, then I'm not really looking to change anything or fix it. You know, now that being said here in Chattanooga, I came in and didn't know anybody. So I've been networking and partnering and I've done deals with multiple different people and multiple different agents that I've been working with and talking to. And so I definitely think that that's the more people you can network with and have on your team, the better. In Shreveport, that's just kind of the way that it it worked out that I just had the one guy who did everything for me. Awesome. Eric, I want to go back to something you said earlier before we keep moving. You talked about one of the burrs that you did and how you did all the work yourself but that you'll never do it again. And I want to highlight that point because I've always struggled with this as a real estate investor. The fact that I'm not, I'm not a general contractor, right? I don't, I don't know how to lay flooring. I don't know how to put in cabinets. I don't know how to do really cool backsplashes. Like I look at some of these other investors, right? Like, you know, I follow investor girl Brit on Instagram and she's like (laughs) amazing. And I see her do these like really cool time lapses. And sometimes it makes me feel like, man, am I not doing what I'm supposed to do as an investor? But what you said is super important is that you could find someone who could do it in half the time with twice the results, right? It'll look two times as good, but it would have taken them half as much time to get it done. So it's a really cool mindset for you to have. So I don't know, I guess just like for you now, have you done any more work on any of your other properties? Was that the last four rehab that you did? No, absolutely not. Nothing. (laughs) I feel like in that experience, I thought I was saving money by doing it myself, but in reality, it took me three months to do what a contractor could have done in a week. So I missed out on three months of rent income and took up all my time. And when it's all said and done, I probably would have come out about even and not had to do any of the work myself. I can relate to that because yes, it could have been cheaper and it's your time. You're wasting your time doing it when your time is more valuable doing other things like finding deals or analyzing deals, things that you know what to do instead of spending three months, you know, rehabbing property. Cause I've definitely been there <laughs> and can relate to that. I would say at the time I didn't have like, I wasn't doing any off market deals. I didn't have a lot of lead flow coming in or I wasn't. So it was like my time, it might've been an okay decision at that time to try to do the work myself. But now that I've decided to focus on becoming really good at finding leads and lead generation that now that that's my focus and that's kind of my expertise and what I'm, I'm trying to be really good at, then now I don't 
that because I'm so so much better at that now I'm definitely not going to try to go put in new cabinets or flooring or whatever in a house because I'm not good at that. <laughs> yeah, what I like to think is that I can put myself in a position where if I want to go install flooring one day, I can go do that, but I don't have to do it. So I think that that's great. You've put yourself in a similar situation where if you really wanted to, you wanted to get away from the world. And that's what I loved about rehabbing. It's just you by yourself and you know, you're not responsible to anyone. And it's kind of a nice break, but you have the option to do that. If you really wanted to go paint one day, you could decide to do that, but you've put things in place. Yeah. So they don't have to. So what about working with contract? I mean, that is a reason that some people do the work themselves, too, because they can't find contractors. They don't want to deal with contractors or they've had a bad experience with contractors. So it's not always about saving money. What would be your advice to some of our rookie listeners when it comes to hiring contractors? Yeah, I think the number one key is referrals, kind of like we were talking about before with Facebook groups, local real estate meetups, any of that kind of stuff. If a contractor has a bad reputation, like word's going to get around. Real estate investors like to talk. And if somebody does something to screw somebody over or do something wrong, like people are going to know about it. And so uh, that's how I found my contractors here in, in Chattanooga. It's just been through asking other investors and who they work with and who they've had a good experience with and who finishes on time and communicates well and stays on budget and all that kind of stuff. And so that's how I've gotten my contractors here in Chattanooga. For the management of these contractors, are you creating the scope of work, putting together contracts for the contractors? How does that work once you initially hire someone? What does that process look like? And are you setting a timeline where they have to finish or are you doing anything special? Luckily, I think I've found kind of like some unicorn contractors here in Chattanooga who they do all that themselves, which is amazing. Like they write out the complete scope of work and the timeline and they have an app that they use called Basecamp where every bit of the scope of work is put into the app. Every step of the process is photographed and documented and this is what we're on and this is the checklist they're doing. I mean, it's some contractors who run their business like a Fortune 500 company. I've never seen anything like it. It's absolutely incredible. So I literally can just get on my cell phone, open up the app, be like, okay, pictures, this is what they did today. Okay, cool. They're on task. Good to go. So I guess I maybe I just kind of looked out on that. But I also, I looked around for a long time and vetted a lot of different contractors from referrals before I found the ones I'm working with now. I actually just learned about Basecamp uh, last week. I was in Idaho and a couple investors there use it for uh, their property management company. So that's that's pretty interesting. I, they must use it for part of their flip process too. But yeah, I had just heard of that software. One more follow-up from me, Eric, on the contractor. You said that you're trying to vet these contractors. What are the questions that you're asking You know, for our rookie listeners? What should they be asking when they're, they get this referral? They got a phone number. They pick up the phone. What are they saying? What are they asking to determine if this is a good contractor or not? I think the first thing is, do they answer their phone? <laughs> you know, Do they actually communicate or call you back if you call them? And then uh, a lot of times I always have them actually come out to the property. And so we'll do a walkthrough. I'll ask for a bid and then see how quickly they get back to me with the estimate, how organized the estimate seems to be itemized with all the prices and, and all that sort of thing. And then honestly, typically most of my vetting has to do with talking to their previous clients. I do just a little bit of communication with the contractors themselves just to make sure that they communicate well and then I, I can get in touch with them. But most of my vetting has to do with talking to their previous clients and, and talking about their experiences with them. That's a really great call out, right? To kind of see how was it working with that person. 
So good advice. People are always looking for contractors. I know that's one of the, the hardest things to find. Just one quick tidbit for me, like say that you're moving into a new market and you don't know, or you kind of mentioned this already, right? Like we talked about the Facebook groups, right? Like that's been super hugely helpful to find contractors as well. So anytime you're building a team, uh, the Facebook groups are, are a big help. I was saying, how many times do you hear stories about contractors who people had a great experience with them and the very front end and they expect it to go great and then everything falls apart at the end. People can make a great first impression and you can interview them and they can sound great or look great on paper, but do they actually follow through? I feel like that's really key. And that's where talking to their past clients is is a great way to kind of figure that out. Let's talk about deal flow next. You mentioned earlier that you're in a position in your real estate investing career now where you've got more important things to focus on than changing out the floors. You mentioned deal flow was one of them. How are you finding deals for your for your business today? Yeah. So about 10 months ago, when I talked with my wife and we really decided that we were going to dive in head first and make the real estate investing a you know, full-time gig eventually, I was kind of researching, trying to figure out what the best way to do that was. And what I found out is that every single investor I talked to, their bottleneck seemed to be finding deals. So like everybody was just, they've got money, they got lenders, they have contractors, they're just trying to find deals, especially in the hot market that we're in right now. And so I decided that I've got to become the guy who can find the deals and then all the other opportunities will open up for me. So I was trying to figure out what, how do I do that? So, you know, researching what's the best way to find those deals, you know, cold calling, direct mail, bandit signs, whatever. And so I actually ended up coming across a guy named Gerald Norton with the Mighty Investor and I ended up signing up for his program. He specializes in search engine optimization or SEO for real estate investors. And so that's kind of where I started. I was like, rather than starting off putting bandit signs or whatever, my goal is to be the number one ranked cash home buyer in Chattanooga. Like when you search cash home buyers in Chattanooga, we buy houses, Chattanooga, whatever. I want to be the number one Google ranking for those web searches. And so that's what I did. I spent about six months building my website, working on my SEO, working 15 to 20 hours a week while I'm doing all my other jobs and not making any money in real estate yet from that, those efforts. And now I'm actually, I am the number one ranked Chattanooga cash home buyer on Google. And so those leads are coming in and we're rocking and rolling. So Eric, I want to ask if I can steal a few minutes here for, for me selfishly. So we're working on some, <laughs> some like direct to seller marketing as well. <laughs> we're working course, on some direct to seller marketing as well. Um, in the markets we invest in just to help us with deal flow, we're wholesaling some stuff as well. Like give me the crash course on how you ranked number one in your market. Like what are the, what are the five <laughs> steps I should follow to kind of follow in your, in your footsteps? Okay. Well, like I said, it took me about six months working 20 hours a week. So it's a lot of steps more than five, but I'll try yeah. to, <laughs> to go quick. Um, I feel like the number one most important is a lot of people try to approach SEO trying to like trick Google into or try to somehow coerce Google into ranking you number one. When really a lot of times what happens is if when people get on your website, they stay on your website and they click around and they read stuff and they scroll through and they click on different pages and all that kind of stuff. If people are interacting with your website, then Google sees you as more credible and they're going to start ranking you higher and higher. So I think that's the first thing is actually having a website that's engaging that people are going to interact with and that Google notices that. And so that's really the first and most important thing. And there's a lot of technical stuff and backend stuff with backlinks and all different kinds of optimizing your picture size and your load rate on your page and you know a bunch of different stuff that's real technical. And I'm not a real techie guy. So like that was just kind of like the program kind of showed me what to do. And I just kind of 
plugged away at it and beat, felt like I was beating my head against the wall sometimes because it was just way over my head, but I just followed the steps and the process. And so that's a big part of it. I feel like it's just having a website that people actually click around, optimizing your pages for keywords, which is kind of basic, but then also having lots of credible backlinks. And basically what that means is that people who actually link to my website because it's good content that they want others to see, if that makes sense. So, you know, when you have somebody like bigger pockets linking to your website or whoever that Google sees you as even more credible because bigger pockets is already established as a very credible website. If that makes sense. Eric, if there's somebody out there that's like me and has no idea where to even start researching and learning how to build a website and SEO, do you have any advice as to resources or websites they should go to to start learning about this? Yeah. Either pay a professional to do it for you or pay a professional to teach you how to do it. <laughs> Don't try to figure it out yourself. <laughs> so, <laughs> I like that answer. So where should they go to find a professional? Yeah. So so Gerald Norton, uh, the mighty investor, he's the guy who really taught me everything that I know. I'd never built a website before. I'd never done any SEO before. I'd never done anything. And, you know, like I was saying before, now I'm the top ranked cash home buyer on Google for my, my area, which just blows my mind that that's even possible, but just follow the, the steps and, and it works. It's almost like the concept of who, not how, right? And Dan Absolutely. Sullivan was on the, <laughs> on the OG podcast. I mean, is that the approach that you took? And I guess for listeners that aren't familiar with that, Eric, like let us know what that approach is. Yeah, hundred percent. And I feel like I've done that with most aspects of my investing. Even when I was getting in my first leads and I had basically buried myself in this website and SEO for six months. And I'm like, oh, I've got leads coming in now. What do I do with these? <laughs> like I've never done an off market deal. I've never wholesaled a property. I don't even have a contract that I'm planning on using. Like I literally had nothing. And I'm the number one ranked cash home buyer on Google. And, and yet I literally have not done one deal off market. I have now. I've done a bunch now. But uh, at the time, you know, so I was like, oh, leads are coming in. I got to find a local wholesaler because I want to wholesale this deal and partner with him and do a JV wholesale deal. And he taught me that whole process. Like, okay, I want to take down this house as a flip. Well, then I found another investor to partner with me on that so that we could do that together. And so I think that that's a big thing that, that I have embraced is that who not how mentality or finding those other people. Like I said, embracing my own ignorance, not trying to pretend like I know something I don't, finding somebody who does know that and being okay with like maybe making a little less money right now to partner with somebody else and split the profit with them in order to really learn and get that education. I love that approach, but just to make sure that everyone understands what who not how is and how it works, who not how is that when you have a goal for yourself, it's not asking yourself, what do I need to do or what skills do I need to develop to achieve that goal? It's who do I need to work with or who do I need to partner with to achieve that goal? And I think so many times as a real estate investor, people feel that they have this like superhero syndrome where they have to do everything by themselves. But the really, truly successful real estate investors are the ones that have built the right teams and the right relationships to help support their growth. Ash, I think you have something to add on that as well, right? Yeah. Well, Eric had mentioned too, how he didn't do rehabs and he learned that he did one and learned he had to outsource it. So I think that's another example of this. But if you guys didn't listen yet, go to the Bigger Pockets OG podcast and listen to episode 470. My good friend at Investor Girl Brit on Instagram, she was interviewed on there. And this is her second time on the show. The first time there, she would talk about DIY. She did everything for her rehab. She did everything herself. And it's interesting to see how she's transitioned 
to actually having outsourcing as much as she can. We were sitting in Idaho last week and she's like, oh, I need to put together this like template thing. And I said, oh, well, here, let me go on Canva and do it. And I was playing around with it. She's like, oh, Ashley, like I already emailed a guy that's going to get it back to me by today. You don't have to do that. (laughs) And I was like, wow, okay, I need to get these people in my life. And so I thought that was really awesome. So go and listen to that episode. She also said she wants to make T-shirts, too, that say hire the who's, not Dr. Seuss. (laughs) I heard that. That's awesome. I love that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Whether you need to buy or sell or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes to help you see new homes first. And they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like, so you can find the home that's just right for you, whether that's a cabin, a craftsman, or a castle. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours, even the same day, with a local Redfin agent who can help guide you through the whole home buying process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents have the experience to help get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put towards what matters most to you, like your next home. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my 9-to-5 job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation homeowning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. Eric, so so you gave us like a really good deep dive on, on deal finding and how you've built that out in your business. Now, what are you actually doing with your properties? Are these all traditional buy and hold? Um, you mentioned a little bit of wholesaling and flipping. Like, What's your actual strategy right now? Yeah, so I'm trying to build up my rental portfolio and then wholesaling and flipping here and there just to kind of build some capital as I need it. 
So I'm, my goal is to try to keep as much as I can right now. I'm trying to uh, embrace the whole delayed gratification mindset of I could make more immediate money if I just flipped or wholesaled everything, but I'm trying to build that, that long-term wealth to build a good future for my family. Can we talk a little bit about the negotiation side of things, Eric? Because if you're getting all these off-market deals, there's no real estate agent in between the two of you to kind of help facilitate that. So it's you talking one-on-one with the seller. I actually just got the audio book for Never Split the Difference yesterday, which is like a big negotiation book. So I'm curious what tactics you're using to feel have helped you get some of these deals closed. Yeah, absolutely. I love that book, by the way. I just read it like two months ago. Uh, it was definitely life-changing for me. I have a great mentor uh, here who has taught me all the negotiation skills that I use now. And I actually, it may seem a little backwards, but I actually don't make offers ever on any property. I've never once made an offer on a property that I've gotten off market. And what I mean by that is my, my goal going into the negotiation with the seller is to make everything their idea. And so I constantly go into it by making it 100% about them, their situation, what it is that they need, what are their pain points or their problems or their struggles, what do they wanna do next in life, what do they need to be able to do that. And so the negotiation stems then from them telling me those things. And then, you know, a lot of times I'll ask, I'm like, okay, so if I can come in and take care of all these issues that you told me about. I'll buy the house completely as is. I'll pay all the closing costs and you don't have to make any repairs or fix anything, do anything. You can leave all the junk in the house. I'll take care of it. You know, all the kind of stuff cash home buyers say. I say, what, what's the best you see yourself doing on this property? And you'll be amazed just by that one question, how often they'll give you a number lower than what you would have offered had you made the first offer. And then the second part is I go, hmm, okay. Now, is that the best you see yourself doing? which again, I'm not lowballing them. I'm not making them an offer that they're gonna be mad at and cuss me out on the phone or whatever. And they'll, they'll either say, yeah, that's the best I can do. Or they'll say, well, I can probably, I've had, I literally had this happen. Well, I could probably come down about 20 grand. And I'm like, in person, I'm like trying to keep a straight face, like don't <laughs> yeah. smile, don't smile, don't smile. And I'm like, okay. Hmm. I might can make that work. Let me go look at this side of the house again, you know, or whatever. Or if we're going into it, I'm like, you know, if they're like, man, I really just don't know. Like, okay, well, how much do you owe on your mortgage? They're like, well, I owe $90,000 on my mortgage. Okay. And then what are you planning on doing next? Well, this one guy told me, I want to buy an RV and go travel the country and work remotely because I can work remotely for my job now. Okay, great. How much, how much would an RV cost that you're looking at? Well, like 25, 30 grand. Okay. So if I could pay off your mortgage and give you 30 grand for an RV, would you sell me the house? Would that seem fair to you? And you'd be like, yeah, that'd be great. That's all I want is an RV and the house is worth $200,000. You know what I'm saying? So it's like those negotiations where I actually don't, I don't ever throw out the number. It's all about trying to find what they want, what their pain points are, solving their problem. And then at the end of the negotiation, everything seems like it was their idea. Another investor just told me the same thing you said is, what do you plan on doing with the money to ask them that? And I think that is so important. And that was such like a light bulb moment for me because you can kind of structure your deal so that it does benefit what they want. And maybe they they don't need any money right now. So maybe seller financing would be a great option. Then you can get creative. Yeah. Or like in your example, you know, maybe they need the down payment for a motorhome or whatever they want to buy. So I think that's a great question to ask. And someone also referred to me the book Freakonomics. And I ordered it. It hasn't arrived yet. But I don't know if either of you have read that. And she said that 
in this book, they just give you really good. It makes you think of questions to ask investors when you're negotiating deals because of how their their brain is working. I don't know. I haven't read it yet, but she said to, to read this book and it will help you learn what kind of questions to ask when you're negotiating a deal. Yeah, absolutely. And then it, it, they really feel like it is all about them and you're trying to work with them and help them and solve their problems rather than how many times do you hear about investors that are like, well, just make as many lowball offers as you can and eventually you'll get one accepted. And I'm like, well, I mean, that's true. You can be successful that way, but I've, I've seen more success when you actually work with people and, and let it be their idea. Yeah. Two of the questions that I always ask is first, will they do seller financing? And I don't ask that right away. I wait till I talk with them and they get to know me and hopefully like me. And then the second question I always ask is, do you have other properties for sale? Because if they have other properties for sale, okay, yeah, that might be another potential deal. But the fact is, if you could buy all their properties and take that headache away from them at once, that's like a great selling point for them to go with you because you're going to take all of their properties. I had bought this six unit from this investor and he would only sell it to me if I took this falling over duplex that he had. And I, but that was like, for me, when I learned like, okay, I am the better offer because I'm going to take this thing that he has no idea what he's going to do with it. I'm going to take it off his plate and I'll, I'll figure it out or whatever. But those are the two questions that I like to ask, but I'm trying to learn more and more about negotiating what other things to ask. But I like that the advice you gave a lot. Eric, I've got one more follow-up question. So you mentioned that you don't typically make the offer, right? You ask them to give you the offer, but you know, I've been on the phone with sellers before as well, and they want to press you for a number, right? So if a seller is asking you, well, well, tell me what's the most that you want to buy it for. What is your response to that typically? The phrase that I use, and it sounds weird to say, but is I'll tell them like, I don't make offers. I'm sorry, that's just not how I run my business. So there's plenty of investors out there who'd love to make you a lowball offer and, and try to squeeze every last penny of you. That's not what I do. I wanna to try to work with my sellers to give them a number that works for them. And then if they're still kind of pressing me and pressing me, then I'll be like, hey, you know what? It, that's totally fine. I was like, honestly, I'm so busy with appointments and buying houses right now. Like I don't need to buy your house. I'm happy to talk about buying your house, but if you can come up with a number that you feel like works for you, then I'll be happy to talk with you. And then in the conversation, which I know sounds crazy cause you're like, oh, but you, you just lost that lead. But at the same, really what you're doing is you're making them chase you. Because if you're the one who seems desperate, then they feel like they've got the advantage. But if you're like, hey, listen, like I'd love to buy your house, but I mean, honestly, I've got five appointments this week. I've got six houses under contract in the past two weeks. Like I'm so busy that like, if you're wanting to kind of shop my offer around a bunch of different people and try to get in a bidding war with other investors, like I honestly just don't have time for that. I'm not being rude. I'm being nice and kind over the phone, but, but make them chase you rather than chasing them. I think that kind of cuts out the people too that are just kind of jerking you around that really just, you know, want to see what you'd throw out there, even though they have really no interest at all in selling. Absolutely. And I'll still put them in my follow-up drip campaigns or whatever to follow up with them every few weeks. Hey, you still interested in selling your house for cash or whatever? And sometimes I'll hear back from them and sometimes I won't. Uh, sometimes they'll, when you start pulling away and they feel like you're like backing out, they'll start chasing you though. They'll be like, oh no, no, no. well, yeah, let's talk about that, you know? So Eric, what kind of CRM or customer relationship manager are you using for, for all of these leads you've got? Yeah, great question. So actually recently, about a month ago, actually started doing Facebook ads uh, for the first time because my SEO leads were coming in. They were good quality. 
But honestly, with the the market being so hot, I think leads kind of dropped off because you could sell a cardboard box on the MLS for over asking price, you know. And so I started doing Facebook ads just to increase my lead flow uh, with a company called Hessel Media. And they actually have a CRM that they have built in with their program. I think it's based on the REI Reply CRM where you can, as leads come in, you can kind of drag and drop people into different kind of buckets. And then there's different automations that they have set up for me that way. If I haven't gotten in contact with them yet, then it's this automation and it lasts for six months. Or if I've talked to them, made them an offer, but they were like, I need to think about it. Then I'll put them in a different automation and that sort of thing. That's so cool. We're actually using REI Reply as well right now. So I was hoping you would have said something different. That way I could have like something else to compare <laughs> it to. But no, it's cool. We're using that software also. And it's it's reasonably priced and it's got a lot, a lot of powers and automation behind it. So really, really love that. It does. Again, with the who, not how, I, I didn't want to put in all those automations myself. So that's why I hired Hessel Media and they actually put in all the automations for me. So I didn't have to learn how to do that. <laughs> Okay, well, Eric, I want to get to the nitty gritty. I want to jump into one of your deals. And so I'm going to fire off some questions at you. If you could just give us the answers and then we'll kind of go into the story. So do you have a deal in mind that you want to share with us? I do. Okay. So where was this property? It's here in Chattanooga. Okay. And what was the purchase price? $90,000. Okay. And what did you do with it? A flip, a burr? Currently in the process of refinancing it for as a burr. And how did you first purchase it? What was your financing on it when you purchased it? So I actually bought it all cash. This is the first property I'd ever bought all cash. This was at the end of 2020. I, at the kind of right in the middle of COVID in 2020, I just decided that I was going to try to, I didn't have any deals yet, but I wanted to prepare to be ready. So called the uh, bank that had the loan on a couple of my rental properties in Louisiana and talked to them about getting a line of credit based on the equity that I had in those properties. So I was able to get a line of credit on those properties that I used that and then a little bit of, of my own cash to purchase this duplex in cash. And then I put about a little bit of money into fixing it up. And then now we're in the refinance process. Awesome. So what do those numbers look like? So did you rent it out and what do you expect to pull back out of it? Did you have it appraised yet? Yeah. So the appraisal I think is actually happening this week. So I expect it to appraise around 140 to 150 in that range. So I'm about with closing costs and rehab costs and that sort of thing. I think I'm in it for about $103,000. So I think it's 75% loan to value. We should be at 140,000 and be 105. We'll be able to take out uh, if it appraises for more and we'll be able to take out a little more. So should be able to get all of our money back out. Hopefully a little extra. Awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I, I guess one last question. What do you, what do you think you'll, you'll cash flow on that property once it's all said and done? Yeah, so it's actually already rented. Uh, so the rehab's complete. Uh, both sides are rented out. It's rented out for a total of let's see, six fifty on one side and nine twenty five on the other. So what's that? Fifteen seventy five. So fifteen seventy five. I have a property manager who actually oversaw the whole rehab and he's managing it. So again, kind of that who not how. I didn't want to do that rehab myself. So it'll cash flow six hundred dollars or so after paying the mortgage and taxes, insurance, property manager, all that kind of stuff. That's an awesome deal, man. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited for it. 
Eric, I want to take us to our next segment, which is our, our mindset segment. This is one of my favorite parts of the show because I know that what holds a lot of real estate investors back, it isn't that they don't have the technical knowledge or they don't have the the know-how. It's that there's something mentally that's stopping them from moving forward, right? They're stuck in that analysis paralysis phase. So I'm curious for you, Eric, before you actually became an investor, what were some of the assumptions you made about being a real estate investor or what you needed to be, who you needed to become that turned out to not be true? Yeah, I always thought real estate investors were just like the typical rich, greedy guy who was like a slumlord and basically just a terrible, <laughs> unethical, rich person, which I know sounds terrible, but that was just kind of my, my concept of a real estate investor, you know? And so as I got into it, I found out that a lot of it's actually the opposite. Some of the, the people I've met who are real estate investors are some of the most kind giving they they love giving back and helping other people teaching other people that they it's really been a much different community than what i first expected when i started getting into the real estate game eric i'm gonna take us to our next segment here and this is the rookie request line so anybody can call in at any time Uh, the phone number is 1-888-5-ROOKIE and leave us a voicemail and we will play your question on the show Hi, I'm Jake. I'm 17 in Orange County, California. You guys mentioned on an episode around a month ago the idea of just-in-time learning, and that really had me thinking of reading all these uh, real estate books and listening to BP and BP Rookie episodes are really of use and it's not applicable immediately. So I was wondering if there's anything else aside from doing that. For example, I was thinking running the numbers on a property, but that might not be of use as well that you would recommend I can do now that years from now I will wish I did at my age. Thanks. Yeah. So what are some things he should be doing now while he's young and not just researching deals? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the keys is connecting with other people who are doing what you want to do and then finding some way to partner with them, provide value with it to them, whatever it takes to to learn from them. Uh, I think that I've read a lot of books on real estate investing. I've listened to like every single Bigger Pockets OG podcast, rookie podcast, everything. Uh, and I've learned a ton, but I feel like I've learned the most when I've been working side by side with somebody who's boots on the ground doing it, investing, you know, here and I get to partner with them and do it with them. Yeah, I agree. I think the best experience you can get and it was what I did was hands on experience. So Jake, you're 17. First of all, this is awesome. It's so exciting for me that you already want to invest in real estate. So I think that what you could do is that with real estate, there's so many different jobs or things you could do to provide value to an investor. So, I mean, you could even do showings of apartments for a local investor. You could help with turnovers, painting a unit. You could do the cleaning in the common areas and just having that connection with a, an investor in your market, you'll be able to meet different people. You'll be able to see what units look like in your area to get an idea of that. You can even do the landscaping at duplexes and apartment buildings. So I think there's definitely a lot of opportunity for you to meet with investors and also going to meetings. I bet that you will be favorite of everyone's that you are 17 and you are there trying to learn about real estate investing. I don't think you will have a problem getting people to talk to you and want to help you uh, learn and grow and become a great investor. So and when you're in, after you've got your first deal, make sure you reach back out to us, Jake, so that we can have you on the show and, and see how your journey went. <laughs> We can take us to our next segment here, which is the the random question segment. And I guess I'll go first, Ash. I'll, I'll give you a break this time. 
what is maybe the most awkward conversation you've had when talking with the seller about trying to buy their property? The times where you have to be the most tactful and the most careful in the conversation is when somebody's selling a property because someone in their family has died. And I know it's kind of like this kind of depressing conversation to have because they're, you know, they have this house and I had a lady who called me that she said her and her husband were in the middle of a remodel in their house and her husband passed away. And so she just doesn't feel comfortable living in the house anymore. And so she wants to move, but the house is still like halfway remodeled or whatever. Those kind of conversations, it's more important. Like, yes, I want the deal, but at the same time, their life situation is way more important than whatever it is that I'm trying to do with the property or the deal. And so being, uh, having those conversations can be awkward and they can be difficult, but doing that in a way where they feel like you actually care about their situation, because hopefully you're not faking it. You actually do care about their, their situation, I think really helps you connect with the sellers as well. And then they you know, develop that trust and respect. And then sometimes that turns into a deal and, and you get the property and sometimes it doesn't. But uh, either way, treating people with respect in, in those kind of tough situations, I feel like is really important. Eric, for my question, this is something that I'm so interested in, but I want to know how are you teaching your kids about investing and about managing their finances? Yeah. So my son, one of his favorite things to do during the summers when he's not in school is to go to the thrift stores and to try to find stuff to sell on eBay. So I know because he's seen me do that in the past. Yeah. So he'll, we'll actually go to the thrift stores together. And so he's learning this idea of deal finding, you know, like I can, I've kind of honed my skills now where I can walk into a Goodwill kind of scan the shelves and go, these are the four items that are worth good money. And so he's learning those skills and go, oh, I can buy this for $2 and sell it for 60 on eBay. Like that's awesome. You know, so we're starting small with those kind of things. And we talk about real estate and he knows what I do. What I do. So we're, we're kind of starting him flipping those small items before we get to him flipping houses. Yeah. And not even anything with real estate, but just the fact that he's learning how to be an entrepreneur and creating his own little business. That's awesome. I love that. Tony, who is our rookie rock star this week? Yes, yes. Today's rookie rock star. And, and for the rookies that are listening, if you'd like to be featured as a rookie rock star, make sure you guys join our Real Estate Rookie Facebook group. We're shouting out all the rookies from there usually. But today's rookie rock star is Anissa Ann, and they just closed on property number two. So they're calling this property the Yellow Papaya. So last year, their goal was to save $30,000 and close on two properties in one year. And they're super happy to, to say that they actually achieved that goal. So, so big congratulations to you guys. Uh, they're going to start the renovations on this triplex in June, and it'll involve renovating the upper unit and uh, luckily the, the lower two units don't need any work. So big shout out to those guys for, for making that goal uh, a reality. That's really awesome. Okay, Eric, thank you so much for uh, being on the show today. But before we sign off, can you please tell everyone where they can possibly reach out to you and learn some more about you and what you're doing? Yeah. So my company is New Horizon Home Buyers, And so that's our website, newhorizonhomebuyers.com and on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, and then my wife and I have a blog called The Real Life Investor Couple. So that's reallifeinvestorcouple.com and also the same on Instagram and Facebook where we document our investment journey and... Uh, journey to financial independence. Is that where your t-shirt is? I couldn't only read the yeah. couple part of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. I love it. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. We uh, took away so much. I especially love the, the negotiating tips you gave us. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me, guys. 
I'm Ashley at Wealth from Rentals, and he's Tony at Tony J. Robinson on Instagram. And don't forget to check back with us on Saturday for another rookie reply. You guys keep chasing those deals. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom. And the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com slash deals. Enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and boom, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. There's free resources only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.